Welcome to this AMR audio interview sponsored by the transactions of the ASME, Applied Mechanics Reviews, and the Applied Mechanics Division within ASME. I'm your host, Harry Dankovich, and also the editor of Applied Mechanics Reviews. Applied Mechanics Reviews is an international review journal that serves as a premier venue for dissemination of material across all sub-disciplines of applied mechanics and engineering science, including fluid and solid mechanics, heat transfer, dynamics and vibration, and applications. This series of AMR audio interviews features personal reflections of my guests on matters pertaining to all aspects of applied mechanics research, including past, current, and predicted research trends, a professional career in science and academia, scientific dissemination and peer review, public engagement and impact, and curricular innovation and developments. We hope that you find the AMR interviews a valuable complement to the perhaps less personal and more technically focused material available through the AMR journal, as well as other technical journals in the area of applied mechanics. I'm excited to present to you today's guest, Professor Edwin Kreutzer of the Department of Mechanics and Ocean Engineering at Hamburg University of Technology in Hamburg, Germany. Professor Kreutzer was born in 1947 in Siemetshausen in Bavaria, Germany, where he attended elementary and secondary school. Following a technical apprenticeship in mechanical engineering with Siemens in Augsburg, Germany, he pursued undergraduate studies in mechanical engineering at the Rudolf Diesel Polytechnicum in Augsburg, where he obtained the equivalent of a Bachelor of Engineering degree in 1971. His graduate studies toward a diploma degree in mechanical engineering at the Technical University of Munich were followed by his doctoral work at the University of Stuttgart, which culminated with a doctoral thesis titled Symbolic Generation of Equations of Motion of Multibody Systems in 1979. In 1986, Professor Kreutzer received his Habilitation degree with a thesis on the topic of numerical investigation of nonlinear dynamical systems. Prior to joining Hamburg University of Technology in 1988, Professor Kreutzer held a position as assistant professor and subsequently professor of dynamics at the University of Stuttgart. At Hamburg University of Technology, following five years as professor of structural dynamics, he was promoted to full professor of mechanics and in 1996 to head of Institute of Mechanics and Ocean Engineering. Between 1993 and 1995, Professor Kreutzer was Vice President of the Hamburg University of Technology and held the presidency between 2005 and 2011. In addition to his professional appointments, Professor Kreutzer has served in a number of service positions to the applied mechanics community. He was Secretary General of the Gesellschaft für Angewandte Mathematik und Mechanik, the German Society of Applied Mathematics and Mechanics, between 1993 and 1996, and held the position as co-editor-in-chief of the Associated Journal of Applied Mathematics and Mechanics between 1996 and 2005. Since 2002, he serves as a member of the Congress Committee of the International Union of Theoretical and Applied Mechanics, IUTAM. He is the past organizer of a number of technical symposia sponsored by IUTAM or the Euromec organization, the European Mechanics Society. Professor Kreutzer's research areas include fluid structure interactions, dynamics of multibody systems, numerical methods in dynamics, nonlinear dynamics, bifurcation theory, and mechatronics. He has published more than 250 publications, including five books in these research areas, and has given more than 180 invited lectures worldwide on these topics. The interview you're about to hear was recorded in Urbana, Illinois, on September 27, 2012. Professor Kreutzer, welcome to this AMR audio interview. It's a pleasure to have you here. Thank you very much for inviting me. I've obviously described in great detail some of your educational and professional career. It's the personal experience that you had throughout the year that formed you and made you into the person you, you chose to be. And I'm, I'm sort of curious if you would share some of those experiences going back as early as your elementary years, uh, secondary school. You know, did you have role models? What brought you into engineering? You know, coming from a family where uh, most of the members were not engaged in 
let's say, engineering or science. Uh, I have to start with uh, certain yeah, background information, including that you, you have given before. Uh, my father, actually, he was head of a small power plant company in my hometown. He accidentally died due to a serious accident in this power plant when I have been four months old. Uh, my mother, she was head of a bank in this town. She was more in, yeah, in humanities-oriented mm -hmm. areas. My two sisters, both of them were um, going into the financial business. And my older brother, he uh, studied uh, philosophy and history. And so they all were far away from yeah. technical yeah. stuff. And uh, when I was a kid, I had some excitement when I saw something running, something moving, machines going on or yeah. a car uh, passing by or home. And uh, when I went to school, I was not a person which were very much engaged in mathematics at the time. I just liked to play with technical stuff. Right. In the late 50s, every year I got a beautiful Christmas present. It was a book in German called Neues Universum, or in English you would say New Universe. And this was a, quite a thick volume, which was always printed just close to Christmas time, just in order to come on the market, of course, to the right time that people yeah, really spend money for such a thick book. This book was mainly on science, technology, physics, and all this stuff. Yeah. Most of the time, there were very new inventions which are uh, found, have been found in the last couple of years or yeah. so. And I was always fascinated reading this book. From Christmas Eve to the beginning of the new year, I have went through the book and seeing all these new inventions, especially new airplanes, new fast trains, okay. new ships, uh, then later on the first satellites, once there was a story about Werner von Braun, and I was fascinated by this person. And so when I uh, finished school, I was undecided what I would should learn, and therefore I was happy to get an apprenticeship position yeah. with Siemens in Augsburg. You yeah. mentioned this already. Right. And so I realized uh, to stay for my whole life at the workbench would not be the way I would like to continue my life. And um, I did obviously a good job, and so I was um, picked by the management of Siemens in Augsburg to compete with about 10 or 15 young graduates from this apprenticeship in Germany for a stipend to go to higher education school in Augsburg. And finally I made it, and I got um, financial support yeah. for the whole studies really? there. Okay continued the studies in mechanical engineering at the time. And after finishing the studies, I was quite happy that it worked very well. And um, I told the company when I returned to them, I would like to continue. And they told me, ah, wait a half a year and then we will see what's going on. Then uh, in fall 71, I finally decided to continue at the Technical University of Munich in the area of mechanical engineering. And I was inclined to go more into theory, and therefore I chose the topic theoretical mechanical engineering. And so I, I was really fascinated by the possibilities in this area, especially, let's say, advanced dynamics, advanced control, uh, advanced thermodynamics. So I, I learned a lot of these areas really from the beginning again. After finishing my graduate studies at the 
to Munich, um, I have been yeah, asked whether I would like to continue for a PhD. So graduate studies there corresponded to a master's? It's the diploma engineer, we call it in right. Germany. So is that a five-year? Uh, it, it's a fi it's a, normally a five-year program, but I finished it after four and a half years, right. just because I uh, could use some information I got already from yeah. the previous studies. Yeah. So I was supposed to go back to Siemens because they supported me once again financially. Mm -hmm. And the company was very generous, you know. They told me, if you would like to continue, it's fine. Yeah. With yeah, us. Yeah, right. So uh, I stayed first for one almost one and a half years uh, at the uh, Munich with Professor Magnus. He is a giant in gyroscopic uh, dynamics. I started in the area of multiple system dynamics. This was also a, a really a hot topic at the time because space dynamics was a really a highly developed area already in this time. And uh, I was offered to do something on modeling of satellite systems. And the problem was that there were already at this time, there were some kind of formalisms under development or mm -hmm. even on the market, mm -hmm. we could say, for uh, really generating the equations of motion of multiple systems. Our idea was uh, to stay away from the so-called numerical procedures and to start with a new area called symbolic manipulation of mm -hmm. the equations of motion. But there were no software tools available which were really powerful enough to do the job. And so I started to develop my own software tool doing symbolic manipulation within the Fortran environment. We did develop, after some discussion, uh, a, a possibility to really symbolically manipulate equations of motion. I developed a special uh, scheme which we could use, and we finally, after three years, I finished a program package called New Oil. Right. It's an abbreviation of Newton and Euler. Yes. Uh, which we uh, yeah also published and this paper from 1977. That's true. Yeah, with my colleague. What's the title? Would you mind uh, reading the title? The here? title was Rechnergestütztes Aufstellen der Bewegungsgleichungen gewöhnlicher Mehrkörpersysteme. There was no restrictions concerning, let's say, either loop systems or tree systems, but it was a code not for, let's say, just uses in the industry for normal uses, but it was more for, let's say, developers. In so for design purposes? Or for, for design, for, yeah, for test pad modeling. Yeah, yeah. And especially vehicle manufacturer like BMW, mm -hmm. Mercedes, uh, and Porsche, they became interested in that because it was a helpful tool in order to investigate the vehicle dynamics mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. procedures. And so we sold it to these three companies. Oh, really? Okay. I had to go very often to them because it was a hard job, of course, for them to, to start with such a program. There was no tool for animation, so we had to yes. develop all this stuff. Now it is much easier right, to, yes. to combine it with such tools. And so this all over started with me. And this was with Werner Schielen then? So originally with Professor Magnus, but only for a while, and then... I was Werner. with Professor Magnus for one and a half years, mm -hmm. and then Werner Schielen, he got a uh, offer from University of Stuttgart yes. to, uh, for a full professorship there, and he asked me to yeah, join him for this new right. position. And so I went to Stuttgart uh, late 78, no, 77, sorry, and then finished my PhD in 79. It was good to have a friend like Werner Schielen because he uh, offered me a position for habilitation. Which is also in, in the German system 
sort of a second PhD almost, right? right. The right. five years right. after right. you write right. almost right. another right. thesis. In fact, in this case, you did write another thesis. Right. This was a, a really great chance. I was also very happy f that he um, yeah, suggested to me to change the topic to get a wider view on yeah. the area of dynamics and mechanics. Uh, I was fascinated from the mid-70s already uh, by the work which was done in the nonlinear dynamics community. And there were so many really fascinating publications from in this area. And of course, the end of, of, 70s, yeah, and the, end of the 70s, the name Chaos uh, came up and it was just the descriptions, the first one you could get. They were so fascinating that I thought, this is an area I would like to understand more and to learn more about. And so I decided not to stick only to the multiple systems area, but also to go into the nonlinear dynamics field. You know, obviously, I'm very interested in, in, in the whole idea of automatic generation of equations, and I worked a little bit on myself. I'm not entirely familiar with this sort of historical context. So who were the other players at the time in the 70s and, you know, a little bit later? And how have you seen the trajectory of that particular field of research in, in automatic generation of equations of motion and, you know, various approaches to doing it more efficiently or now doing things that involve coupling different fields, whether it's multi-body systems with flexible structures or with fluid structures? How's that evolved over time and where do you, might you see it going if you see future At that work. time when I started uh, in the United States it was Tom Kane who did a lot in this area. He was uh, competitive so to speak yeah. in this area. In Europe there were uh, colleague Wittenberg he did a lot in this area. He okay. worked uh, with a colleague from San Diego at that time and so uh, there were not too many maybe worldwide five to ten handful. Uh -huh. yeah, yeah, yeah. Gradually this problem became more mature from the rigid body area you mentioned this already continued to the combination of rigid and flexible bodies right. with all the problems which are coming into play with the combination nowadays or let's say in the 80s and 90s there were more um, yeah interaction with other parts of physics i would say you mentioned fluid structure interaction and then there came also a big portion a subsection of the multiple systems area the particle dynamics area so, so discrete element modeling right, right. Uh, so uh, this um, topic developed quite nicely i would say and in many different dire directions then later on uh, also the uh, subject optimization came within this area nowadays there are many many groups with very excellent Results very excellent tools which have been developed. And um, I'm happy that the continuation from the process we started is now in a stage where we can see it's applicable in industry. You have very powerful tools nowadays. Yeah. And even the numerics became very powerful so that you can really handle huge, very huge problems. Did you see this when you started out? Did you have oh, an idea no, I, of, or did you even spend I, the time I, thinking about it? Or? I hoped that it were developed in this way. Yeah. But I was surprised that it took 10 years in order to really come to It was a little slow point, for a while. Right? And it then, was yeah. very slow. Yeah. And then uh, in the mid-80s, it's, it's really it tremendously developed. Uh -huh. yeah. Especially, of course, due to the more powerful computers. Uh -huh. Now you can do things on a laptop, which you could do 20 years ago yeah. on only big machines. You, yeah. know? you produced huge equations, and especially yeah. in the symbolic dynamic business, right. you can uh, produce yeah, all kinds of Thousands of, of pages yeah, of equations. Thousands yes, of pages. Yes. I did something I would like to mention yeah. shortly. I lived in the United States or started to live there in 1981 to 1982. And at that time uh, in California, it was possible to use so-called environmental blades where you can put on a name, uh, which is not offending or something like that. And I put the name New Oil. 
on this license plate. So N-E-U-L. whenever yeah, N U oh the whole N E W E U L E U L yes, uh-huh. and whenever I came to a gas station yes. and the guy fra- fra- oh, asked me, but what does it mean? <laughs> then I always had to tell him a short story yes, of yes, where yes. the name comes from, uh-huh. and uh, so I did commercializing also. You're listening to an Applied Mechanics Reviews audio interview from September 27th, 2012 with Professor Edwin Kreutzer of the Department of Mechanics and Ocean Engineering at Hamburg University of Technology in Hamburg, Germany. I'm your host, Harry Dankovich. You said Siemens sponsored much of your studies. Did you go back and work for them in the summers? I went back to them only for one summer. And for the other years, I just took the chance to get involved in research. You yeah. know, At the Institute of Magnus, I w- have been a so-called HIFS assistant, so a junior assistant, right. uh, to help the researchers in certain projects. This was, for my intention, was more yeah, valuable for my own yeah. development, and yeah. therefore I stayed with the university at these yeah. years. Siemens was really generous. I didn't have to go back to them yeah. to work for them. Let's say normally for two years you have to work for them uh-huh. if you get so much money, because they, they paid almost all the money for the two studies I had. I see. So this was uh, experience I will never really forget, because I try always to give my students a chance to go somewhere else to foreign countries or to do something which uh, I often try to sponsor for them that just they can pick up more information than yes. I can give them. You always, I think, use your own experience uh, to promote someone and to uh, help, let's say, young people to go into science and uh, to learn more about the development of science and so on. And uh, my own development became more, let's say, sophisticated in the years after my start in the academia But I have still the feeling that when I observe a young student coming in, studies with me, I teach mechanics, the basic courses, we have, let's say, 700 students in class very often. After, let's say, one semester, you can realize some of the students show up very often, not Mm -hmm. with silly questions, but with very bright questions. And uh, when we see their grades after an examination, uh, we pick them and ask them to work with us as student assistants for a while. So I can see how to perform under circumstances, circumstances, Mm -hmm. under conditions. And so uh, when we have the opinion, we, means myself and my co-workers, then we encourage them to do, let's see, a student project with us. And we see uh, what they perform in other topics, not only in mechanics. And then uh, when we have the yeah, meaning that they have good potential, then uh, we encourage them to uh, go, let's say, for a semester or one year abroad to see how they perform in this other, let's say, environments. And if they do good, then normally I ask them to become co-worker with mine. Mm-hmm. And so I give enough money for them normally to get a full position with us in yeah. the institute, yeah. full payment. I, I mean. see. As a, as a technical yeah. staff, you mean? Or no, as a PhD student. As a grad student. Uh, yeah, PhD student. Mm-hmm. And uh, then they stay with me for three, four years. All of them normally end up with a PhD. Yeah. Two of them I brought to publication uh, already. Yes. And so yes. It's interesting that you say co-worker. Yeah. And, and my reaction when I asked whether you're talking about technical staff or, or students, I think there's a bit of a difference in the way students are viewed 
certainly my own experience from, from Europe and the one that you're sharing is that students, once they become graduate students, they are treated as co-workers. They're treated mm -hmm. as, in some right. sense, you know, equals, although possibly, right. you know, having less education, but that's, that's to be yeah, understood. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think things, things are different in other parts of the world. Do you have some, some impressions on that? Maybe even within Europe they are different, or, or certainly outside sure. of Europe? I think the, the system we have in Germany are different from the, in Italy or in France. Maybe they are similar in Austria, mm -hmm. but uh, I think we, we have a special situation in this respect. This is, I think, the, really the positive aspect mm -hmm. we can really offer. It's not the full payment by itself, you know. It's, no, it's, but it's the, simply the respect this, this, the this, this respect for, yeah. for yeah. them, yeah. and uh, they give it back, of course, right. to yourself. And uh, I, I appreciate this way of doing it. Do you think of it makes course, them more likely to actually pursue an academic career? Yeah, I think uh, they are more mature even because I, I give them the freedom to go to a conference by themselves yeah. to, to show what they did and they can really survive in a competitive environment, yeah. you know. How is competition, how does that work in academia? I'm in favor of competition because I think competition is part of my life at least and I think without competition, uh, why should one get forward? Think about the Olympic Games. If there is no competition, there is no new world record. If there is no, let's say, improvement of the situation right from, from right now to the future. Competition is necessary. It has to be fair. You have to have certain standards, mm -hmm. especially if you do research and there is a lot of research going on in the same field. You should really uh, appreciate work from others which have been done in this area yeah. and normally you are you are standing up on the shoulders of the predecessors right. as Newton I think right and I think that, 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 that's it's really the important aspect of, but I think competition from my point of view in research and science is necessary and does it work I think it normally works of course sometimes I have the feeling that some colleagues of ours are not so happy if the competition is strong. But on the other hand, I think uh, that's the only way we can really go forward. We can yeah, bring new ideas, new creative ideas into so science. A, and therefore, I think yeah. it's really necessary. And uh, it works, yeah. from my point of view, it works. But there's a balance also between turning the enterprise into one that's so narrow that only very few people engage in it because then the competition is also very narrow versus having a very diverse group of people involved and encouraging more participation, trying to not scare those people away from doing this. I mean, acad academia, of course, is a very free uh, way of engaging intellectually, and it's a, a certainly wonderful place for development and research where it's not necessarily driven by commercial needs. But at the same time, maybe the reward system is not always as strong yeah. as in some other areas. And so there's a balance there, I think, right, mm -hmm. between competition and... and that's, uh, that's true. I think it has to be there, a balance between these two aspects. Yeah. Of course, there are maybe fields where only a few people really can compete with each other mm -hmm. worldwide. But uh, I think that's not always the case in areas like in engineering. This brings me to the question of dissemination of research. What do you feel is the purpose of disseminating research? Considering the fact that you just said that it's a competition to some degree, that might mean that uh, as I develop my work, I would not share it with others until I've really gotten to the point where I've solved all the problems versus the opposite of trying to get my stuff out as very quickly as possible. Uh, and of course, there's lots of pressure within the way the structure is organized in academia to get one's stuff published as quickly as possible. So mm -hmm. what's, what's the tension there, if any? Of course, I'm not a friend of publish or perish. 
But I, I think at certain points, even if you are not finished with your research, you should yeah, announce, you disseminate these ideas in order to, yeah, to check whether you are on the right way, on the right direction. Yeah. Sometimes, it, from my point of view, it helps a lot if you have colleagues which critically review the work you have done. And I think it pushes you forward even. And that's my experience the last 40 years or so. Yeah. For me, it was always um, not the point that I should avoid to get in contact with uh, somebody in my field before I really know it's everything is perfect. I do not publish, let's say, 10, 15 pages per year, uh, papers, papers per year yeah. uh, on the same topic. That I, I'm simply not able to do that. Mm -hmm. But um, on the other hand, uh, I try to publish a topic when I have the feeling that it's at a point where I should share this information mm -hmm. and see what others' opinions are, and then I can go forward. And this is also the way I teach my students. We go to conferences, we go very often to conferences to show what we have done, to compete with results which other groups uh, obtained, and then see whether we are in the same league or we have to do harder in yeah. order to come into this league. But this, I think, is a part of the academic life from my point of view. Many times the research that we conduct is sponsored by federal agencies, um, I mean, sometimes commercial entities, but often enough a federal you know, government agency that, that sponsors the work, which, of course, then ultimately takes its resources from taxpayer money. I wonder, uh, in that regard, whether journal publication also needs to serve the interest of the public. Are we maybe in some cases writing papers that there's, I, I imagine you might say, no way that someone without the technical expertise would be able to follow these papers and therefore they're very much limited only to a, a small group of individuals. And is that a problem? Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's certain danger, of course, in this aspect. I uh, always try at least to figure out in, in the introduction what's the, the maybe the practical use behind the theoretical stuff we produce mm -hmm. or what further use of this results we obtained uh, is possible. And so I think that at least this should be given. Of course, somehow a paper in a certain journal has to be technical, of course, as mm -hmm. well, because you would like to offer insight into maybe a very complex problem. and Move, it, move the problem move forward. forward. Yeah, yeah. At some point, it will become more technical than someone can follow without the background right. information you need to follow such a paper. You can have a paper which gives an overview of a t about the topic. Mm -hmm. That's also necessary mm -hmm. that our journals stay attractive for people which are not really uh, in the small specialist area yes. which we are working in, yes. but with, with a wider perspective. Therefore, a journal has to fulfill both a more general point of view and then, of course, also the more theoretical part and technical point of view. One thing I mentioned when I was describing what you had uh, spent your, your last many years on uh, is service to the community, committee work, organizing conferences, meetings, editorships, and so forth. If you were to advise someone who's starting out as an, as an assistant professor or a young researcher, how much time they should spend on service work versus you know, their own research, what's the balance, um, where's the value, does the community need this, what's your sense? First, of course, it takes time, that's mm -hmm. for sure. Yeah. Uh, we have 24 hours per day, and uh, my old professor, Professor Magnus, told me 24 hours is fine. 
You have to split it intelligently in order yeah. to bring it down to a good uh, result. Yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, sleep is necessary, <laughs> but right. it's, you, you can survive with less than, For let's say, eight hours. Uh-huh. So, sure. yeah. I learned the lesson, I would say, and uh, he was uh, engaged in also so many fields, also uh, in the area of committees and socially. And uh, what I learned from him and from my other colleagues, uh, from Schielen and others, that uh, you have to have a certain part of your academic life to serve for the community, academics community or beyond that. For instance, organizing conferences, of course, it's a burden and it takes a lot of time to prepare a meeting, especially if you have a meeting for several hundred people, of course. Uh, on the other hand, it pays off in the way that you you get acquainted with so many colleagues yeah. worldwide. Yeah. You make so much, con- so, so many contacts, mm-hmm. which, Friends, yeah. which pays off mm-hmm. a lot in science. Also socially, I think it's it's uh, addition to your normal life. And yeah. For me, it goes together. Already in Munich, uh, we organized two meetings during the time I have been there, and this was exciting for me too. I was a young student, and I met persons which I would never have the chance to meet. Uh, without this experience as organizer. Are, are there some individuals that you remember from any uh, of these meetings from, early on? Maybe? There were from Russia, for yeah. instance, there was Ishlinsky. He came from Moscow. He was a giant also in gyroscopic dynamics. Yeah. Tom Kane from Stanford. Blakewell also from Stanford. Uh, it was C.S. from Berkeley, which was my host later on. People from Asia, which uh, I knew just from the papers. These were, from my perspective at that time, were really giants in yeah. my field. And yeah. Is there a presentation at a conference by a well-known person that stands out in your mind that you remember till today as having uh, really uh, moved the field or moved your, your engagement? In? Yeah, I once was really surprised about a presentation by Arnold from Moscow. Yes. The very famous yes. guy from dynamics area and, and, and scholastic mechanics. I was surprised. He, he did it quite well and his English was good, understandable, but was surprised me most was really the bad transparencies he used. Oh, okay. <laughs> but this maybe was just the result that uh, in Moscow they couldn't afford good quality paper or good quality material for that. It was a bit sad. This giant in our field yes. gave uh, yeah, a good talk, but the material he presented was hard to follow. Uh, my image changed a bit about uh, a really very respected uh, researcher will not always give a good talk. Is there a presentation that maybe you didn't expect that much from and then found uh, that it really Yeah, was this, a... was, this was a presentation of a colleague uh, from Germany at uh, a meeting of the German Society of Applied Mathematics and Mechanics. It was on turbulence aspects. His name is Zireb. He did such a perfect presentation mm. at uh, this conference about the aspects of uh, circular flow uh, between two cylinders yes. or between two spheres. Uh-huh. It was really perfect and great. And this brought me also to the fluid structure business okay. later on. Yeah, yeah. So Just due right. to this uh, yeah, presentation, I was yeah, inclined to go in this area as well, especially because it, it has to do with nonlinear dynamics on the right. one hand and with fluid structure interaction effects on the other hand. 
You're listening to an Applied Mechanics Reviews audio interview from September 27, 2012, with Professor Edwin Kreutzer of the Department of Mechanics and Ocean Engineering at Hamburg University of Technology in Hamburg, Germany. I'm your host, Harry Dankovich. In Stuttgart, when I have been there and started with the modular systems and control problems, um, uh, there was, of course, a lot of applications in the area of uh, vehicle uh, industry and so on. When I moved to Hamburg, there was no car manufacturer. The, the next one was in uh, Volkswagen in Wolfsburg, but they were too far away from our place. And so I thought, how can I use my knowledge on robot dynamics in Hamburg? And so we had a huge laboratory. We had a stillwater basin where we could really lower a vehicle underwater. Uh-huh. And uh, I got a student from Brazil. And in Brazil, they have oil reserves just offshore and a tremendous uh, amount of resources there. And they need uh, underwater vehicles. And so I thought... They use them for exploration? Oh, yeah, yeah for right, fixing, for exploration okay. and for fixing boats. And so we did theoretical stuff in this area. We produced vehicles for that, which we could use in our basin. And we were capable to do really a very nice experiment in our own lab. I have still papers on this area, but there we started with underwater vehicles with two robots' arms uh-huh. and all this stuff, of course, with thrusters and uh, all the stabilizing effects you need. Nowadays, we are more engaged in swarm models. Swarm, and, swarm, and swarm model. models. Yeah. So we take, let's say, a bunch of such vehicles, autonomous from each other, and coordinate, look for, let's say, resources, look for... Yeah, pollutions or right. other stuff. So and and you do physical experiments right, with these well, as well yeah. in the in the building in, in our, or in our, actually out in, in, in our in our in our basin we yeah. gotta do it. Yeah, yeah, right now it's just laboratory yeah, yeah, wise. Yeah. yeah, and then the the crane work that's also ongoing yeah, this, or it's less. This, so? this is still on, ongoing. Uh, we started. Also, uh, I did look for applications for nonlinear dynamics stuff because we are more theoretical guys. But on the other hand, I would like to show it works really for practical problems. Yeah. And I thought Hamburg has a lot of true. floating cranes. That's true, yeah. And they have problems, of course, in doing some of this uh, crane work. And we started to do uh, crane dynamics. That means uh, lifting or lowering load under wave conditions. Uh-huh. But and in a harbor area. In a harbor area. Okay, yeah. But now, later on, also, of course, offshore. I had three students which worked in this area. Mm-hmm. Later on, I got interested in um, problems where we have just a load on a string and lifting and lowering that you have so many nonlinear dynamics effects. Right. And so we started first with a flying crane. Zeppelin is airships, you know. Yes. And, and later on, uh, there was a company in Germany which started to to design a huge airship in order to use it for lifting operations in rural areas or oh, where you cannot carry a crane on I see. There. And so it was. It, it should have been able, I should say, to uh, lift 200 tons with one grain operation. Uh-huh. And uh, we had a collaboration with them to design the control stuff for lowering and lifting the loads. In addition with the, the, just the load portion, also, of course, the fluid structure interaction during, during loading processes. So it's a very complicated process. Yeah. This company didn't survive. I see. And then we thought we should look for other applications and went into the container grains which they use in harbor areas, so uh in the port, Mm -hmm. just to load and unload ships. Gantry cranes. Gantry cranes, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. This is a very nice area because, uh, again, 
dynamics, non-dynamics, and control comes together. Yeah. So this mechatronic field, yeah. which is now what it's called, is a field uh, which we feel, at least in Germany, there's a big need in industry to train young engineers in this area. And therefore, we looked for applications and we built even experiment in our laboratory hall uh-huh. because I have a really huge hall, which is 10 meters high and about 20 meters long. So we have uh, uh, the scaling is one to six, so it's quite big already, where we can do this grain job in our laboratory, mm-hmm. what we developed previously theoretically. That brings me then to uh, another topic, which is sort of the way our educational programs are designed and curricula are designed. Are we sufficiently adept at changing those and accommodating changing needs? Should we? I think there's a certain danger that we, due to pressure from politics, especially in Europe due to this Bologna process, have felt that in the last 10, 13 years or so, there was a change in the meaning what university education should provide. It was more the orientation of the outcome of a certain study and education and less about the content. And I'm a fellow which was trained, of course, in the 70s, 60s and 70s, and I felt always the Humboldt ideal education the better way. Although it's 200 years old, but I think okay. it's still the way we should do university education. Which is what I'm a not sure. I'm a combination, yeah. of course, of research mm-hmm. and teaching, mm-hmm. and especially autonomy in what you have to educate and not the inf- not influenced by, let's say, certain needs of a certain area of industry. The graduate should be able to work for a certain company without much delay when he starts there. Yeah. But on the other hand, employability is just one aspect what uh, university education should provide. Society gains more if we have people which are creative, which have their own thinking, which could push forward the border of knowledge, which are keen to go into new areas and not just applying certain formalisms. I think that's not enough for a person who is educated in a university. So we're not necessarily educating people to fill the existing gaps in industry. We're educating people who will create new gaps when they go out and become innovators and creators. There are so many topics coming up now, and Mm -hmm. there will be more topics which we are even not able to think about Mm -hmm. that in the future. Mm -hmm. And if we train it just to do some, let's say... What they did yesterday. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Uh, Then I think that's not enough. That will not push forward what we have in mind. I think at the same time... And the reason perhaps that, you know, there are pressures or, or interests outside of academia who, who like to see curricula formulated in a certain way is because you want to grow the pie. You want to grow the number of individuals who are the athletes or are at least good enough athletes to, to be able to, uh, you know, move society forward and, and, and encourage progress. And I think in this country, there is a lot of emphasis on designing curricula that actually uh, encourage judgment, encourage creativity, uh, encourage you know, design as a core aspect mm-hmm. of engineering. But it's a challenge because there's only so many hours in the day, as we yeah. spoke about earlier. That balance is, is a constant struggle. You know, what constitutes a foundation? Uh, when is a foundation something that you can sort of get through software and now you move on to, to use software, but you begin to develop higher level learning skills or design skills? I think normally uh, if, you, if you train a student in this fundamental science area, 
he will easily apply it if he has learned, let's say, in two or three projects to other problems. But if he is trained only uh, with certain problems, but never had the chance to go deeper in the fundamental sciences, mm -hmm. that's just the other way around. He will not be able to pick up new ideas, not, not in the same way. Of course, you have always pride students which can do it by themselves, mm -hmm. but many students need to have, let's say, some training in the fundamental area mm -hmm. to be more general. And if, if you really split it up into very small portion and you end up that he's a specialist in a very small segment mm -hmm. of the whole field, then uh, to widen uh, this area by himself will be much more difficult than if you had this broader knowledge in the basic sciences. Mm -hmm. I think um, we should not think only on the application of, all, of although industry often uh, asks us to do that, but we should think about, uh, let's say, a broad basic education in the important fields in engineering, yeah. for instance, yeah. in our field, in the other sciences, it's the same. Mm -hmm. and, and then apply it in two or three projects, student projects, to a certain topic, That fulfills, I think, the need the industry has, and it educates the students better than the other way around. Do you feel that your students are trained also to reach out outside of engineering and science? Yeah, they do. I have, uh, from myself, I have the experience that some of them didn't really stay within the engineering area mm -hmm. and went into, let's say, business uh, development, and uh, they do a good job there. So, and they are happy with that. Yeah. So, when they visit me and tell me what they are doing, they always say it was important for them to get mature enough in a certain area. Uh -huh. And then they were able really to, to move to other areas uh -huh. much easier than they would have been trained in the special area, but would never have the chance to take a job in another field, you know. I think that often enough in dynamics, perhaps, we find that uh, the questions that we concern ourselves with are asked at a very late stage of a design process. So, so in, if it's an industrial application, or even something like a, a civil infrastructure project, whatever the context, that things that involve dynamics, things that involve things that change over time, uh, things that are more complex in the sense that they look at many subsystems and the way they're coupled, that those questions tend to come very, very late in the design process and often as, a, as an afterthought. I don't know how good a job we do as dynamicists to provide the tools to the people who engage in design early on to what extent we need to uh, uh, not necessarily always reach out to them, but, but uh, uh, target some of our activities in the direction that would be helpful. Mm -hmm. I think that that's a very important point that uh, we tended in the last maybe three, four, five decades to, to subdivide the areas uh, in engineering and science also uh, into portions where there is very good expertise in this portions, but the overview got lost. And I think that's really very important that we uh, rethink all these developments and make a reform in this process in order to have a more uh, general perspective in the early stage of the studies already, to train and to, yeah, to uh, educate students in a way that to have a certain global thinking for science developments, if they have that. They do not run into trouble like we did it in Germany with this train station in Stuttgart, for instance. 
there was designed for more than 10 years a new uh, train station. Everything was decided and then there came an uproar in the population in Stuttgart that everybody was against it. And this was simply that the city planner, obviously, and, and people which were involved in the planning of this huge project, it's a, about three billion yes. project, they were surprised that everything went positive. And in the last stage, the last year, they were stopped because uh, people did not like a new train station. Was it a layout issue? Or yeah, the, uh, no, the it, it was simply the effect that people or? were not involved in the process. Ah, you know? I see, I see. And uh, I think this, that it has not only a, let's say, nature or engineering science aspect, it has also a social science yes, aspect. Yes. Everything what we do has impact to the way of living yes. people uh, are used to. This uh, way of thinking went, uh, got lost in the last three, four, five decades. And therefore, it, it produced so much problems, especially in Europe. Big projects are no longer possible because as soon as Very many stakeholders people realize, the, yeah, yeah. stakeholders, uh, yeah. when they are involved, first of all, they are against it because they don't know the context and, 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 the, and the implications uh -huh. from this. That's, I think, a really big problem. Is it the case, I mean, you're saying this has happened in the past three, four, five decades. Is it the case that the, the kinds of projects we're, we're undertaking are simply more complex today? Or was the knowledge and, and skills, were they there at one point? Uh, it's both. Or, but I think uh, now an open society, of course, has much more information flow yeah, and, uh, possibilities to, to stop something or to go into a discussion which was not possible 10, 15 years ago I without see. the internet. I see. But I think our education should go in a new direction and we have to reform it somehow in order to avoid such kind of, let's say, protests against something which is helpful for the society. Mm -hmm. But you can't come through because people are afraid that there is coming up something which they are not able to control. But there's a, a reasonable chance that even those who are involved in the process don't necessarily understand all of the implications. That, that's of, true, uh, yeah. That, and that, that's uh, the I other mean, point. I think we all uh, have, we, those we have, we have all, yeah, yeah. I think we all did something wrong in the past in this area. Uh -huh. Well, it's been a pleasure talking to you, Professor Edwin Kreutzer. Delightful to have you here. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure for me to answer your questions. Thank you very much. Thank you. This is Harry Dankovich, editor of Applied Mechanics Reviews. Thank you for listening to this Applied Mechanics Reviews audio interview with Professor Edwin Kreutzer from Hamburg University of Technology. Please remember to come back for more reflections on all aspects of applied mechanics research and professional engagement.